0: All right, if you can find your way back to your seat, that would be fantastic. Uh, Would appreciate that. Time flies. It feels like. Uh, We're going to sink into our teaching time. We have been going through the book of Genesis since January 1st, and we are actually coming to the end. And so in, in most ways... Uh, This is kind of our last Sunday in the specific text, Uh, and we have some wrap-up stuff to do next week that I'll do, but um, just if you would join me in thanking and welcoming uh, teaching this morning is uh, John Corpy, who's a part of our community, so I'm excited for that. So off we go. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good morning, and thank you. Uh, I'm privileged to be taking the baton and kind of taking it across the finish line at the end of Genesis. And doing that means that we're going to close out the story on our friend uh, Joseph. It's been an interesting ride that he's had. It's been been kind of a, a wild ride. And we've been able to Watch kind of an amazing transformation happen in his life. Um, When Joseph was 17 years old, I guess you could say he was young, he was naive, he was proud, and he was more than a little bit spoiled as his father's favorite son. And his life ran into some hard times, some really hard times, and he could have just folded up and faded away, but he didn't. Uh, he went through those hard times, he did the best he could with what he had, and over time he, he was able to know, he was able to, yeda da, know through experience that God was with him every step of the way. And I guess before we take off flying, why don't, why don't we pray together? Lord, thanks for today, thanks for the gift that it is, thanks for the air that we are breathing and the health that we have. Thanks for the opportunity to gather together here. And Lord, I know that when there's this many people, there's all kinds of things that come into the building that we're thinking about. And so, for the next few minutes, Lord, we we just it is our intention to give you our undivided attention. Even though I'm telling a story or teaching something, our attention is on you because. We want to know what you have to say to us, to our lives, in the middle of this story. Uh, So we give this time to you, and I pray that uh, the thoughts that I've had about this and the words that I have prepared to say, um, they point to you and only to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Joseph started here right? And at 17 17 years old, he, he ended up there. He had some hard times. And we've learned over the last 12 chapters that it was during those hard times that Joseph learned patience. He learned humility. He learned how to be present. He learned how to pay attention to the patterns in his life. He learned that between stimulus and response, he had the freedom to choose. And he learned to ditch even the thought of being a victim and just take his responsibility to do his part to create his future. Joseph's come a long way in 12 chapters. And now in the latter part of his life, uh, his father Jacob is dying and Joseph is about to become the head of the family. But before we dig really into that, I want to I just look in the rearview mirror for a minute and look at three lowlights in Joseph's life. If you don't know what a lowlight is, it's the opposite of a highlight. And the first lowlight in Joseph's light is when his father Jacob betrayed him. You remember that? He purposely put him in the path of danger. He sent this boy to check on his older brothers who were tending the flock in Shechem. The same brothers that the text told us a while back that were so disgusted with Joseph, they couldn't even talk to him. They disliked him. They had contempt for him. They hated his guts. And Jacob had to know he was putting Joseph in danger. And I don't know, maybe he was just fed up with the kid. Maybe he was still angry with him for having to listen to Joseph's dreams about how the whole family was going to bow down to him sometime in the future. Or maybe he thought sending him to Shechem would just grow him up. Kid can't swim, toss him into the deep end of the pool. Let's see what happens. Whatever the reason for doing it, sending Joseph with his coat of many colors and his high opinion of himself to spy on his brothers who hated him seems like a bad idea, doesn't it? It was really hanging him out to dry and and Jacob had to know that it was dangerous. It was a low light. And so the plot plays out. Joseph narrowly escapes death He sold for a few pieces of silver and he ends up as a slave in the house of Potiphar, the captain of the guard in Egypt, which is another low light in his life. And if we pause the story right there for just a hot minute, here's a question to think about. Why didn't Joseph try to escape? There's a rabbi named David Foreman who writes a commentary on this part of Genesis. And he points out that once Joseph became the head of Potiphar's household, he had a certain range of freedom. He probably had opportunity to escape. He probably did not want to be a slave in Egypt. But he didn't try. Why not? And David Foreman suggests that Joseph was wrestling with something even bigger than escaping. And exactly what that was was this, he says. Why hasn't my father, the patriarch of our family, found a way to come and rescue me? Why hasn't my father come for me? Because that's what you do when your son is in trouble, right? Maybe... My father doesn't want me to come home. Joseph had no way of knowing that his father thought he was dead and his brothers were going to stand by that lie. We know it because we get the advantage of reading the text, right? But all Joseph knew for sure was that he had been betrayed, he was a slave, and he was all alone in a foreign country. And that is a lot to hang on a 17-year-old kid. It was about as low of a low light as you can have. The interesting thing about it is, through all of that, Joseph did, just did the best he could with what he had. And over the span of a little over a decade, he rises from being a slave in Potiphar's household to second in command of all of Egypt. Not bad for an overprivileged kid sold into slavery, right? (laughs) Well, for the sake of time, we're going to fast forward to a point in time in the story during a worldwide famine where Joseph's brothers are sent from Canaan to Egypt in search of food. Little did they know when they got to Egypt that Joseph was in charge of the food. And through a convoluted series of events, an awkward family reunion takes place. Jacob's entire extended family moves from Canaan to Egypt and they settle there. It was a remarkable turn of events. And you might say Jacob's family fell into an outhouse and came out smelling like a rose, right? (laughs) I mean, for the next 17 years, things went well, very well. They were given the best land in Egypt. They prospered. They multiplied they really couldn't have asked for a better outcome. And so that kind of brings us to the part of the Scripture that we're going to look at with Jacob nearing death and Joseph about to take over as the leader of the family. And the really big question here, the tension in this story is, what kind of leader is Joseph going to be? And it's a fair question because if we look at Joseph's father, Jacob, and Jacob's father Isaac, and Isaac's father Abraham, there's been a family pattern of deception, betrayal, and getting even. And you know as well as I do that once those things get set into motion, the whole thing can turn into a vicious cycle. And so I guess at this specific time in his life, the even better question is, once Jacob dies... And Joseph no longer has to defer to his father's leadership. What kind of leader is he going to be? Has he secretly kept hold of thoughts of revenge that he's going to unleash when the time is right? So let's pick up the story. It's in Genesis 49 29. Jacob is about to die. Then he, this is Jacob, gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Anybody remember where this cave was? Hmm. Starts with a C. Where? Canaan. Canaan. Yeah, good. The cave was in Canaan. And just to kind of set this straight and get it straight in our minds, Jacob once was in Canaan. He's now in Egypt. When he dies, he wants to go back to be buried in Canaan in a cave. Right? Jacob threw everybody a giant curveball by asking to be buried in Canaan after living in Egypt for 17 years. And I thought it would be a good time to kind of remind ourselves why Jacob might have wanted to be buried in Canaan. And I guess I need a volunteer to help me. It's a multiple choice question. Somebody between, hmm, right there. Okay. Um, I have a multiple choice question. and, And the question is, why did Jacob want to be buried in Canaan? Okay. Would it be A, he thought the weather was better in Canaan, or B, Jacob was Dutch and he thought caves were too expensive in Egypt, or or C, Jacob wanted to keep a promise. Probably C. It makes the most sense. Yeah, C. C makes the most sense. There you go. Thanks for helping me. Yeah. Here, these are sweethearts. I heard it's homecoming this week. You might need a sweetheart. So Jacob wanted to keep a promise. And it was God's promise he wanted to keep. Jacob thought he was going to be the one to fulfill God's promise to Abraham and fill the land of Canaan with his people. But he filled the land of Egypt with his people. Right? And so now with his dying wish, he's asking them to take him from Egypt back to Canaan to be buried. It's his way of keeping the mission of filling the promised land alive even after he is not. Does that make sense? This is going to be part of Jacob's legacy. I missed the next slide. You can, yeah, you can push right through that. Um, So Jacob takes his last breath and Joseph is now the leader of the family. And here's how it's described in Genesis 50, verses 1 through 5. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I'll return." I just want to point out that it takes at least 70 days for Joseph to make the request to bury his father in Canaan. And we don't quite understand it, but it took courage for him to do that because he was asking his surrogate father, Pharaoh, you know, the guy who recognizes brilliance with dreams, the guy who pulled him out of prison, the guy who gave him a new robe, the guy who gave him a place of honor in the family business, the guy who set him up with a beautiful wife, all of the things a real father is supposed to do in that culture. He was asking this guy, his surrogate father, if he could go and bury his real father in Canaan. And after all Pharaoh had done for Joseph, this could have been a giant slap in the face wait a minute, you want to go bury Jacob in Canaan? What's Egypt? Chopped liver? And what did Canaan ever do for him in the first place but almost starve him to death? Egypt rescued him. I rescued him. And now you have the audacity to ask me to take him back to Canaan and bury him? That's what could have happened but Joseph asked pharaoh agreed and this huge family and a huge throng of egyptian dignitaries take the body of Jacob to Canaan they bury him Jacob's last wish is granted and then that huge family makes their back to egypt to the lives the comfortable lives they've known for the last 17 years And all is well, except not all is well. Genesis 50, 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Now, to put this in perspective, I mean, it's been almost 40 years since joseph's brothers sold him into slavery it's a long time to carry the weight of guilt and these guys were afraid that with jacob gone joseph all of the mercy grace and forgiveness he showed him was just going to evaporate they were afraid that the real joseph was going to show up and they were going to get what they deserved So that big question that we asked earlier, that's still hanging out there. With Jacob now gone and Joseph now the head of the family, what kind of leader is he going to be? What's he going to do now that he holds all the power and he finally has the chance to get even? Genesis 50, 8, through 21 His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The first time I read that, I I think I said to myself, don't wait just a cotton-picking minute. That's, that's not normal, right? Jacob's gone. Joseph's in charge. He holds all the power. He can get even. He deserves to get even. His brothers deserve to be punished. But the text shows that he clearly has not only completely forgiven his brothers, he's been able to see what God was able to do during the whole process. Joseph's broken the cycle. He's begun something new. He's begun to create his own legacy. And it's a great story, but as great as the story is, I don't want us to just be entertained by it. I want us to understand and see a principle at work that allowed Joseph to do what many people cannot do, So what specifically was Joseph able to do? He was able to forgive the unforgivable. He was able to wipe the slate completely clean. That's the what. But why? Why was Joseph able to do that? What's the why behind the what? My small town, simple way of understanding the why behind the what is this. Joseph took out the trash. And by saying that, I don't mean to imply that his brothers were trash. What they did to him was trash. But Joseph didn't let what they did to him stink up his life. Right? Joseph took out the trash. And here's an example of exactly what I mean by that. Um... I like to fish and on the rare occasion that I catch a bunch of fish, I take them home and I clean them and these fresh fish present a problem that you don't automatically think of because on one side of my cleaning station are these beautiful fillets that are going to make a beautiful meal if they're processed properly. But on the other side of that cleaning station are heads, eyes, gills, rib bones, guts, you know, fish carcasses, right? And they got to be processed too. So I double bag them, and I take them from the house out into the garage to this big blue container where they sit until Thursday morning where I roll that <laughs> container out to the garage. Oh, you already know where this is going, don't you? Does your husband Fish? Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, so there's a problem. Sometimes I catch the fish on Saturday, and it's a long ways till Thursday. And especially if the weather is warm, it only takes like a day for those rotting fish carcasses to start polluting the neighborhood with a stench. I mean, there are wild animals congregating around my garage. Vultures circling in the air. There's detour signs set up so people can avoid our house. Okay? <laughs> hey? w- yeah, time. yeah. I have a, I have a friend who freezes their fish carcasses, and he told me about it. But I think that's just crazy. There's a hundred ways I could screw that up. Yeah, one time I found my wallet in with the fish carcasses that I had frozen. Don't ask me how it happened, but that was one way out of a hundred. I could screw it up. <laughs> anyway, in, in my mind, that's a good idea, but it's crazy. But you know what else is crazy? Choosing to keep those rotting fish carcasses in the house and living with the stink getting used to it, rationalizing that it's not really that bad, making excuses for it, but nobody would really live with the stink, right? I mean, that's just ridiculous. And you probably know where I'm going, don't you? How many of us hold on to the trash of anger, resentment, and other stuff that just stinks up our lives? It sits there in our hearts, Maybe we push it as far off to the side as we can so we we don't see it. But it begins to rot away. And it stinks up our life. And that stink stinks up other lives. You with me? Well, that stinky fish story didn't happen to Joseph, right? Because he took out the trash. He was hung out to dry by his father sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused of assault by Potiphar's wife, forgotten in prison by Pharaoh's servant, and that was all trash that littered his life. But he took out the trash so it didn't stink up his life. It didn't trip him up. Joseph didn't labor under the disappointment of how his life had gone or how he'd been betrayed or how he'd been forgotten. He just did the best he could with what he had, which allowed him, as Ruth and Wally in the last two weeks explained to us, to flip the script on his story. He put a new face on his story and moved from being a victim to a creator. I tried saying the long word that that they had, but I think I dislocated my larynx when I did that. So... Um. But the point is, Joseph became someone who chose to take responsibility for his part to create his future despite his past, right? You can see that in his life. And the text tells us that God blessed all Joseph put his hand to. And and I believe that it was a life free from trash that even allowed Joseph to forgive his brothers and be the person God wanted him to be, a leader who broke the cycle of deception, betrayal and getting even. There was a German pastor by the name of Helmut Thielicke who endured the darkest days of the Nazi Third Reich and he wrote about forgiveness and he wrote this about forgiveness. One should never mention the words forgive and forget in the same breath. Forgiveness is not pretending that the offense did not really matter to us. It did matter, and it does matter, and there's no use pretending otherwise. The offense is real. But when we forgive, the offense no longer controls our behavior. Why is this a big deal? when the offense no longer controls our behavior, we're not held in the past, we're free to live in the present. We're free to move on. And I'm I'm fully aware that in my simple brain, it seems like I'm telling you that there are bad things that are done to us and they are trash. And we need to take out the trash so we can move on, forgive and live. And as I do that, I I might make it seem like forgiveness is, I don't know, simple. But you know what? Forgiveness is simple. It's just not easy. And one of the reasons it's not easy is because we tend to think of forgiveness as a switch that we can either flip on or flip off. And if that switch is stuck or if it's hard for us to move, we can just give up. And then we're stuck. But I got a thought for you. When it comes to forgiveness, there's no switches. Just dials. And it's not a surprise that we can't always just flip the switch and automatically forgive something because sometimes We're just not ready. It might not be good for us to flip the switch and forgive something before we've processed it. And God will never force us to do something. It's just not something that happens. I mean, maybe we can only take the trash to that blue container out in the garage, and that's okay because we've turned the dial on forgiveness as far as we can. And if we'll just keep trusting God and trying, eventually I think we'll be able to turn the dial of forgiveness all the way like Joseph did. But sometimes it just takes a little time. When we read Joseph's story, terrible things happen to him and just a few chapters later he's forgiving his brothers with a kindness, compassion, and generosity that is just Unbelievable. What's easy to forget is how long it took. Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery. He was 56 years old when his father died. That's 39 years of living and learning. That's 39 years of trusting and trying. Maybe at 17, Joseph was able to just turn the dial of forgiveness just enough so he could do the next right thing. And as he struggled through the struggle, doing the best he could, he came to know from experience that God was with him every step of the way, and he was able to trust God more and keep turning that dial until forgiveness was complete, which is what we saw in Genesis chapter 50. Someone said that forgiveness is really the ultimate act of trust in God. It's trusting that you don't have to make things even because you believe that God's got it. In fact, as one of the songs we sang, the fact is God has you in the palm of your hands right now and there is no better place to be. And it doesn't matter what your circumstances are, You could be at the lowest point in your life right now and there could be no hope. And I can tell you from experience that even then, especially then, God has you in the palms of his hands. Believe that. Trust in that. Act on that. And watch what happens. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for each person that's here. I thank you for this story of Joseph, which is an amazing story of somebody who could have just folded up and faded away but became a leader. He became somebody who was good news to everyone around them. And so I thank you for that story, I thank you for that gift. And Lord, I pray that if there was something that struck a chord with somebody today, I pray that you would just cement that into their heart so they have it forever and they can hold on to it and use it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.